Hello all, this is R.D. Kulik. I wanted to start off this show to talk about a loss we recently had in our family here at the Ex-Millennial Man. Last week would have been the time, it was after the U.S. Open, that I would have done tennis talk with Tina. And as many of you know, some of you even pointed out to me that we did not do that, and I put up an old podcast. Well, Tina, who those of you that have listened know uh, her name is Swapna. She is my wife. Uh, she's Tina's her stage name, so to say. Her father passed away. And I want to take a moment to talk about what Sharad Sate, not just meant to us, that's a that's you know obviously a very personal thing, but what he means to the ex-millennial man. Sharad was 81 years old. He was in great health. As a matter of fact, he and his wife, my in-laws, come to visit us every Thanksgiving here in Ohio. And when they came this last Thanksgiving, which they drove from St. Louis, all that stuff, he'd said they found some cancer and they didn't think it'd be very serious. Again, that was last November. And during the course of the year, he's had some surgeries here and there, had his bladder removed. Everything seemed to be okay until it wasn't. And in about mid-August, they had said there really was nothing more that could be done. And he fought his wife, his children. They all did everything they could to, to help him. But it's, uh, it was, he just felt like it was his time. And he passed away peacefully with his wife and his children by his side. And then last weekend, we were back for his funeral service. What Sherrod specifically meant to the ex-millennial man, though, is he does the music. The music you guys hear at the beginning. It's probably the only universal compliment I've ever gotten on this show, is that people really, really like the music. And my father-in-law, he was, in, in his professional life, he had one job, but his passion was music. And that was professionally recorded in India about 10 years ago or so whole album of music. And it was the very first thing I decided on when, uh, outside of the name of the podcast, the music. I listened to his whole album, found selections, and narrowed it down to that 15 seconds that you guys hear at the beginning and the 10 seconds you hear at the end. It's obviously part of a much larger thing, but he's, he was part of this family. He was part of the ex-millennial man. And while his music will go on forever, he is dearly going to be missed. Tina slash Swapna for her father wanted to do this podcast. So you will hear in it that we are not in the same room. She is still helping her mother out in St. Louis. But I wanted to I wanted you guys to know that here was a man who who followed his passion, who he taught the children of St. Louis uh, Indian classical music. And like I said, while he may not be with us, I am hoping to just bring a little bit of that memory and 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 allow his his creativity allow his gift to live on forever. So thank you, enjoy the podcast and now let's hear a little bit of that music. Welcome to the Ex Millennial Land Podcast, podcastreceivesync.com. I am your host, R.D. Kulik, and with me here, even though we happen to live in the same damn house, we have to do this over Zoom because she doesn't want to be in the same room as me, and that's the greatest other other host, which is now on the other side of the Mississippi River because she's actually in St. Louis and I'm still in Cincinnati, and that's Tina. How are you today, Tina? I am doing very well, thank you. So welcome to my little... Well, I won't say very well. I've I've been better for reasons that I think you've already discussed. Yes, that's... But you, you're, in the words of Christian Bale, you're a professional. So you said we had to come <laughs> back. Right. And 
I explained at the top why we're about a week late on this, but not only did we want to talk about the U.S. Open, but and I'm going to spend the whole first half talking about this. We'll spend the second half talking about the actual tournament. But this was, I, I mean, I'm trying to think in my lifetime. You're in St. Louis right now, which obviously a generation of Cardinals, Yadier Molina, Adam Wainwright, and Albert Pujols are probably going to retire. That's a big deal. Yeah. That's a big deal. Oh, this city mm. is buzzing about it. Yeah. It's, it's, I've been here for a couple of weeks and it is definitely on everybody's mind. Yeah. Especially but, the Pujols thing, you know, chasing 700. But, yeah. and, you know, we're talking about, I mean, that's baseball. It's St. Louis, obviously, but Adam Wainwright, great pitcher, probably not a top 50 pitcher in the history of baseball. Yadier Molina is a, is a top catcher. Albert Pujols is a top player, but... Probably the second best catcher in history. Yes, that's right. It represents Cincinnati here. It, but it's a big deal, but it's not earth-shattering, okay? It's not from the sporting sense. It's not people in Britain are not pulling their hair out right now because Albert... Albert Pujols <laughs> is not going to be on the cover of Time magazine. No, you're no, right. Outside of this tournament, you had one person who played, one person that did not. I'm going to let you choose how you want to talk first. But we are seeing, I don't, I start off saying, I don't think I've ever seen this in my life, but two monumental athletes to their sport leaving at the same time. And that's Serena Williams and Roger Federer. What are your thoughts? Let's start with Serena for, I mean, for a couple of reasons. Serena actually played, right? Yeah, she Um, won, what, two matches? She won two rounds. Yeah. Yeah. She made it to the third round. Serena Williams' career is over. It ended two weeks ago today at the hands of, no, three weeks ago today. I'm sorry. On the day we record. Yeah. Yeah. At the hands of Isla Tomjanovich. But we should talk before about what, what came in the two matches before. Serena announced shortly before the U.S. Open. Uh, it was actually during the Toronto tournament, the Vogue story came out. She had written an essay in Vogue talking about how she was going to retire and basically stated explicitly that she wants to retire so she can have more children. Now, it actually explicitly stated how unfair it is that she had to do that. The guys in the sport, the top guys, a lot of them have, have Federer has four kids. Djokovic has two. Murray has, I think, four. Nadal is expecting his first one here at some point shortly. It hasn't interrupted any of their careers. Yeah, it's it's biology, and it's, she's, she's not wrong to feel that it's a little unfair. I tell this to people all the time. You've said it. Ty says it on this podcast. Father Time's undefeated. It's yeah. uh, Serena is probably not going to go out there and win a major title. No, <laughs> and she is, I think, going to be 41 here toward the end of this month. <laughs> thinking back on it, right? Graf was 29 when she retired. 41 is unheard of unless you're a double specialist, mm-hmm. right? Serena announced that she was going to retire and she had won one match in, in Toronto prior to that. Is it, was it Toronto or was it Montreal? I thought it was Toronto. They changed cities. Yeah. Year, yeah, they changed cities every year. I think it was Toronto this year. But So she won one match in in Canada. And then uh, the announcement came out. She lost the next match. She came to Cincinnati, lost the first round to Emma Raducanu. And I want to say the score was six, four, six love. Yeah, I know. If I'm not mistaken. I mean, I know there was a bagel set there toward the end. And, you know, Raducanu plays well on these hard courts. Obviously she likes these American hard courts, but still I'm sure that rattled Serena. What I thought was interesting is 
you know, in the lead up to the U.S. Open, she had a couple of weeks before the U.S. Open started. Then she actually started doing something that she'd never done before, which was play practice sets against other active tour players. She'd never done that before. But I think that's probably helpful to do that because it shows you where the bar is. Right. If you're just hitting with a male practice partner or something, that's that's not showing you where the competitive bar is to win points. So she did actually play practice sets and came out. The first night, you know, it was a circus that first night. At, now, obviously, Serena's going to play the U.S. Open. We know it's her last U.S. Open. She is going to be playing the first match of the night session on Arthur Ashe Stadium. And I don't think anybody would begrudge her no, that, no. right? That's her spot at this point. I sort of had the sneaking suspicion that Serena didn't necessarily want all this foo-for-all, but realized that on some level, because of who she is, it would be a little bit unseemly for her to just hang up rack and walk away. Mm-hmm. Right. I use the word unseemly. I don't think it would be unseemly, but I sort of understand why people would want her to have the farewell. So she won her first match against Danka Kovacic and Kovacic acquitted herself. Okay. But didn't handle the occasion as I don't think very many people would handle the occasion all that well. Serena won the match playing I wouldn't say 100% Serena tennis, maybe 85%, 90% Serena tennis. She played well. I thought Serena played played pretty well. And, you know, again, the problem with being Serena Williams is that you're going to be judged by your own standard, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah, I don't, she, well, that wasn't 100% Serena tennis, but I, I do think she played well. After she won, there was this enormous video package narrated by Oprah, and there it was... Again, it was a lot, and I understand why it's a lot. And it's befitting Serena's stature, not just in sports, but in culture, that it's a lot. <laughs> I always had the sneaking suspicion that she did not necessarily want all of that. No, but it's, again, when I talk about, I am, I'm thinking, I've said this on the podcast before, she is the most dominant and maybe most important athlete of my lifetime. And yeah. It's uh, of, I mean, I know. I think I told you, I think she's culturally the most important athlete since Muhammad Ali. Yeah. So, yeah, there's, there's going to be a thing. And look, the, the way it looked to me is the U.S. Open prepared for her to lose her first match. So they. As you would, yeah. given her performance yes. in the two lead up turns. Yeah. Right? But, yeah. you know, and she, I do have to say, again, other people have said it more eloquently than I have. But any of you fans that are spending thousands of dollars that honestly think she's going to win that thing, you're out of your goddamn mind. I mean, to, to be so rude to the opponents when they, you know, dared to try to win a match. It was uh, <laughs> it was pretty crappy in my opinion, but she walks off the stage now. She well, uh, should we talk about the other, the rest of her matches? If you want to, we should absolutely talk mm-hmm. about. Yeah, so the second round, she ran into Annette Contevet, who is a number two seed, and Contevet was the world number two based on points. The rankings are a little bit screwy right now, just from COVID and the abrupt retirement of Ash Barty and all of that stuff. They're still a little bit odd. And Contevet had had long COVID, so wasn't coming in 100%. I thought Contevet actually handled the occasion pretty well and acquitted herself pretty well, took a set off of Serena. But Serena won that match too, which again, is probably two more matches than anybody realistically expected Serena to win. Um, went into the third round match on a Friday night. So it's again, seven prime time on a Friday night. Against Ila Tomjanovic, who, you know, I th- think I told you that 
I sort of thought that Tamjanovic would handle the pressure okay because she's a little bit older. She's in her late 20s. But she's also got a little bit of a reputation as a choker. She didn't choke at all. Tamjanovic played magnificently. And to me, the sort of the summation, Serena played an incredibly fitting last professional game on tour in her singles career. That last game, Tamjanovic was serving for it. And Serena, I think, saved something like six match points in the last couple of games. Vintage Serena fight back. It was very much an, I'm not going down. You're going to have to take it from me. And Tamjanovic, to her credit, did step up and take it. Let's talk about the men. I know people are going to say Roger Federer it wasn't the greatest player ever. I think there is some argument to be made that he was. I also, mm-hmm. here's my little conspiracy theory. I think Roger Federer was going to announce his retirement at the U.S. Open. But after Serena did that thing in Vogue, he decided he was going to wait until afterwards. Maybe. Uh, I think a lot of people, if you look at, so the Labor Cup, which is Federer's baby, it's mm-hmm. like supposed to be, it's almost tennis's version of the Ryder Cup, except it's Europe versus the world. And there's no live tennis uh, tournament yet, so. No. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yet. Yet. Um, (laughs) Hopefully there will not be. But spoiler alert, Labor Cup, since it's only men, Europe has been utterly dominant since its (laughs) its inception. Because not only do they have the big three, or as we'll talk about the big four, they also have Tsitsipas. They've had Zverev. Now they have Alcaraz, who we'll talk about, right? Yannick Center. They've they've just got a murderer's row of talent on their side. And Team World has some good players, but Francis Tiafo, as much as we love Francis Tiafo, is not. Yeah, and we'll talk a little you know, bit about him when we talk <laughs> about the tournament. But I mean, Federer. But anyway, so yeah. so Federer, his, Labor Cup was his baby. And it's being played in London at the O2 Arena this year. And even back in the spring when Labor Cup tickets first went on sale, their value on the resale market suggested that everybody thought this was Federer's last day. And then he announced shortly before Labor Cup started that, yeah, that this is this is it for him. He's not even playing singles. You know, his no. knee, he has this knee injury that he's had like three surgeries on and his latest scan, which I don't know if I totally agree with you because listening to his press conference, it sounds like his latest scan was the thing that convinced him that he really needed to hang it up. Mm-hmm. And he only got that like maybe midway through the U.S. Well, open. I'll live he's with my knee. I'll live <laughs> with my voices in my head telling me what's maybe, going on. Maybe. Maybe, but yeah, he's again, he's not even playing singles. He is, as we record this on Friday morning, he is planning his last hurrah Friday evening, playing doubles with BFF and arch rival Rafael Nadal. Well, this was like in the case of Serena, I don't think there's a doubt that she is the greatest tennis player, a women's tennis player of all time, maybe greatest tennis player of all time. I know Margaret Court's a little irritated that we don't give her credit or anything like that. I mean, I, I still think. <laughs> An argument could very much be made for Martina, but okay, you know. okay. But with that, though, if we put famous it famous original Martina, not Martina Hingis. I think the thing with Federer is that you could definitely see is he started the modern age of tennis starts with Roger Federer. This is yeah. and you know when you talk about the Big Four, I think some I saw some people you might have sent it to me too, where a lot of people think Andy Roddick should be part of that because. 
if it wasn't for Federer, Roddick would have a lot of titles. <laughs> I mean, they would. Well, I mean, I don't think I, I would agree with that. You know, I think people try and claim that Andy Murray doesn't deserve big four status or try to lump him in with Stan Wawrinka. And yeah, Murray and Wawrinka won the same number of major titles, but Murray made eight more major finals that he lost mm-hmm. and got to number one in the world during the big threes dominant era. Well, like I was trying to explain. <laughs> you're number one over those three other guys, you have more of an yeah. argument to be in the conversation. Well, like I was explaining to your son this morning on the way to school who Joe Flacco was or is because the Bengals oh. play. The so game. Joe Flacco is still playing? Yeah, well, that's what we were discussing. How's he not reti- <laughs> I was just thinking about, I, I saw that he's playing for the Jets or something. Yeah, and, but anyway, I, I explained to him. That's not part of this discussion, but no. I, I thought that he had retired like 10 years ago. I think he should have, but <laughs> I was explaining, and yes, I will get into the, is the Joe Flac- Flacco elite conversation here, but I was explaining to him that great players, guys like Dan Marino never won a Super Bowl. And I go, but on the other side, if you look at a guy like Joe Flacco, he's won as many Super Bowls as Aaron Rodgers has. That doesn't mean they're equal talented. So I understand what you're saying, but I would it's agree. Team sport, though. Yeah, right. I would agree. You know, Andy Murray, it seems like even the photo they took the other night, I think Federer and Djokovic and Nadal all say, yes, Andy Murray is part of this group. But back to Federer. Like I said, I, I believe he started this modern era of tennis. In a lot of ways, I could say maybe he killed Americans men's tennis. Because he just oh, took uh, all the fight you, out of it. If you look, Pete Sampras posted a little farewell Roger video on the Twitter, and he essentially says as much. And all those guys, Djokovic, uh, Murray, Nadal, they had to beat him in order to get to that level. He was the king of the mountains. So I think when history looks back is whether— I mean, if you look at that initial dominant period that Fetter had, so he won his first Wimbledon in t- 2003. By 2009, six short years later, he had beaten Sampras's record in that epic match of final at Wimbledon. Over well, didn't he go like 10 years of making the semifinal of every major or something like that? Something like that. I mean, yeah. no, that's, I don't think as we look at today, I don't think we understand. I, that's right. I don't how, know that Djokovic or Nadal ever had that yeah. kind of period of dominance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you could argue, too, that Federer is on the short end. But. There were three years. People talk about last year, Djokovic 27-1 and one in majors. Federer did that three times. That one he lost was to Nadal yeah. at the French Open. Right? But, and then you even you look back. I mean, a lot of people are going to put that Wimbledon final between he and Nadal, one of the greatest matches of all time. Most uh, people say it is the greatest yeah. match of all time, and it's hard to dispute that. Yeah. So his his impact on the sport. Is I, I feel like I guess I'm you know it's, it's not like I need to sing the praises of Roger Federer, but I feel like the sport's kind of forgotten about him the last few years. They kind of looked at him; he's just an old man holding on to glory. He didn't have Djokovic to. Djokovic just passed him. Nadal yeah. just passed him. And if you're just a pure numbers guy, mm-hmm. sure. But any any other thoughts on Federer and as he says his final farewell? Of the three, right, you're always either a Federer, a Federer fan, no, Djokovic fan, or Nadal fan. If you're a Djokovic fan, then you you're, abuse you're everybody Serbian. else on Twitter. You abuse yeah. everybody else on Twitter when they dare to make to say something about I mean, the, the announcement, the farewells to Roger Federer just littered with replies from Serbian, so, or not from Serbian, from Djokovic <laughs> fans. He's not that good. When your standard bearer Djokovic is way, way classier about this than you, 
<laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. It's uh, yeah, but no. So I was always a Federer fan. I like aesthetics. Serena. One of the reasons that I was never a Serena fan, and I wasn't. You could understand the importance of somebody's impact on the sport and have enormous respect for somebody without actually being a fan. And the reason I wasn't a Serena fan, partly, is serve aside the aesthetics of Serena's game were never something that I particularly cared for. It always looked like she was muscling the ball. It's one of the reasons that I don't particularly love watching Rafa Nadal play, because I think he does a lot of the same thing. Now, Serena's serve is is a big exception, right? That serve is is beautiful and crisp and and great to look at. But Federer's whole game is great to look at, right? People talk about the backhand. People talk about that rocket forehand that he had. But he never looked like he was swinging hard at that forehand. It just flew off of his racket. The other thing that I think maybe casual fans don't understand Every great tennis player, every great tennis player in this, especially in this era, wins on their feet. It's not the racket, right? It's the feet. It's the movement. It's the anticipation. That's what all three and throw Murray into the mix, all four of them, they just move incredibly well. And Federer, you would never even hear his shoes squeaking on the on the hard courts, right? Everybody else, you hear the shoes squeak. Federer seemed like he was, you know, it was almost balletic the way he would approach the ball. But he was lightning fast, but you never saw the visible effort. That's why people wax wax rhapsodic about his game, because it was so pretty to watch. He made it look effortless. And you know, you and I know, right? We've talked before on this podcast that people... I think a lot of people don't realize how much work goes into being an elite professional athlete, Mm -hmm. how much work and preparation goes into it. But he made it look like he just waltzed out there and won 15, 20 majors. Yeah. And and unlike Serena to a point where you said there were a lot of people that didn't like her, some of it is misogyny. Some of it is her style. Some of it, I mean, some's good. Yeah. Some's good. Some's bad. Most bad, but there's some real reasons people like you or all that would have criticisms of game. Nobody criticized Roger Federer. I mean, he literally sat, I think his time at the top of tennis was probably the most universally beloved athlete in the world. And I yeah, honestly believe I mean, that. if you look at the late aughts, right? 06, 07, 08, right? I'd go out to the tournament here in Cincinnati and I'd see, you know, they used to call it the Federer Express, right? It's just this train coming to town is going to mow down everybody in this path. I saw a kid one year out there with the shirt that said Federer is better. Like I always kind of wanted that shirt, you know, but the the other thing that all of those three guys, Djokovic, Nadal, Federer have all acknowledged is that they would not be the players that they are without the other two. Right. That that's awfully nice of them, but they wouldn't be the players they are without Roger. I mean, come on. Sure, but Roger <laughs> wouldn't be as good as he is without uh, the other two guys uh, either. And I think that, uh, no, I think that's absolutely okay, true because, right. so like Serena playing practice sets for the first time and it playing dividends, you need to know where the bar is, mm-hmm. right? So Federer coming out and winning 15 majors in six years, right? That shows you where the bar is. Not the number of majors, the the standard of play, the standard of fitness, the standard of preparation, the, the shot selection, the movement, the, that shows you where the standard is, right? If the standard wasn't there, does Nadal keep getting better? 
this Djokovic kid. Look at Novak Djokovic and how good he was in 2010. And he was really, really good in 2010. He is so much better now because he knows that to go out there for the last 10, 15 years, he has to beat Roger. He has to beat Rafa. He has to beat Murray. He knows that he has to beat those guys to be the best. That's where the bar is. And so you keep pushing yourself. I think if you go out there and you win 15, if if Roger went out there and he won 15 majors and never had a, a Rafa, does he win 20? I don't think so. Mm, all, right, all right. I don't think so. I, I don't think he does. I think, I think those three guys pushed each other to the top of the game by understanding that they had to be better than the other two greatest players of all time. Regardless what happens, it's we're walking into 2023 and there's no Roger Federer that's going to be playing tennis. There's no Serena Williams. There's no there. I mean, even if they're not going to win it, their absence is going to be known. And we're going to talk a little bit about what happens next, because I think the U S open gave us a, gave us a look at what the future may be post these people. But before we had a very sunrise sunset kind of tournament. here. Yes. But before we close the book on Roger and Serena, were there any final thoughts you wanted to share? So I think it's interesting. Roger's final match is going to be a doubles match, not a singles match, right? We've already discussed that. Serena played doubles one last hurrah with Venus. Who still has not retired? No, no. And she's out dunking on reporters and <laughs> still doing whatever Venus does. Venus Williams is the coolest person on tour. I've told you this mm-hmm. many times already, right? Serena is a legend, but Serena is not cool. Venus yeah. is yeah. cool. <laughs> and it would be very Venus Williams like to let Serena have the big hurrah, the Oprah narrated video, the time cover, and then for Venus to just say, you know what, I'm out too, and just walk away. That, that wouldn't surprise me at all. It also wouldn't surprise me to see her continue to play for another five years. I, I just don't know mm-hmm. what she's going to do. But she's older than Serena, so she's 42. Mm-hmm. That's old. Well, then, like I said, we'll probably talk about them again, just about their absence. But let's take a break here and then talk about the future. Hello all, this is RD. I wanted to talk to you guys about another podcast that I do work on called High Heels in Politics. It's hosted by Marianne Christie, who I work with here in Southwest Ohio. And Marianne, she interviews a lot of influential people. In Ohio, she's interviewed a lot of political people that are influential. But for those of you outside of this state, she's also interviewed people like Susie Chapstick Chaffee, a former Olympic skier who was the face of Chapstick for the 1970s and 1980s. It's really interesting to listen to that one because she talks about her struggles as a woman in the Olympics, but then how she used her celebrity and her attractiveness in order to get more rights for amateur athletes, which led us today to things like the NIL. Also, Susie was very instrumental in Title IX, which we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of. But it's not all just seriousness. Uh, Marianne has also interviewed the Naked Cowboy, the New York City icon that's been out there. Simon Lease, who a lot of you may know if you've ever seen The People vs. Larry Flint, he was the guy that arrested Larry Flint. He also arrested Jerry Springer when Jerry Springer was a member of the Cincinnati City Council here. So I encourage you guys go to Spotify, Google, Apple, go search High Heels in Politics, follow, subscribe the show. Marianne comes out with a new one every week, and it's an incredibly great conversation. And if you're interested 
or know anybody that may be on high heels in politics, just go to the contact page and talk to us. So let's get back to the conversation. Okay, Tina, there was an actual tennis tournament. It wasn't just a celebration. <laughs> it wasn't just a celebration of Serena, which it did seem like so. It. I felt bad for her opponents. Well, for the first week, it was very much yeah. like that. I felt bad for her opponents all the time because it was like after the two matches she won, it was just this orgy of congratulations, which again is well earned. But then the yeah, no, the girl I mean, that beat her basically was had to sit there and wait while Serena went through her concession speech. I guess so to say, while I, I mean, uh, I don't think that that was. I think if you're Isla Tomjanovic, you you know that that's what's going to happen, right? Yeah. No, no, Serena she handled it well, gonna, right? Yeah, and she said, I mean, she was sort of pitch perfect in in her on court interview where she said, "I've been rooting for Serena to win." Well, in the time we've done this podcast, it's especially the last few years when we talk about the women's game and you always get annoyed with me because I'm like, has this person done anything? Has this person done anything? And then even uh, Swiatek, is that how I say Swiatek? I know you're going to be, oh, you're Polish and she's Polish. I go, well, that should show you all why I can't pronounce it. But there's obviously Serena's gone, Ash Barty retired, and it seems like now... You're starting to see separation. Yeah, and You're starting to see that next so star. many different winners mm-hmm. of majors over the last five, six years. You know, Wozniacki won, Halep won a couple, Muguruza won a couple, Osaka won four, but only the four hardcore tournaments. Mm-hmm. Andrescu, Raducanu. I mean, I think Kerber won a few in there, right? Again, there hasn't been a dominant figure emerge. And it kind of looked like Ash Barty won Wimbledon, then a couple of months later won the Australian Open. It looked like Ash was... She had already won the French Open, so we know she can play on clay. It looked like Barty was poised to be that next dominant champion. And then he was like, you know what? Nope. (laughs) But now if you look at the whole year, you look at everything shook out. I mean, are we seeing the emergence of of the new women superstar? Or are there some other people that are still percolating in there? Yeah. No, I think Giga Shantek is poised to be a dominant champion at this point. She inherited the number one title when Vardy retired, right? Which is not the way anybody wants to get to number one. But it seemed like once that happened, she was like, I am going to show you people. So she won Miami and Indian Wells, the first time anybody since Graf had won them both in the same year. And just went on this tear, won the French Open for the second time. She won it in the pandemic year when it, they played it in the fall. Yeah, when they played, they played um, it like around this time. It was like October or something they played it in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she won it the French Open pandemic year. But again, came out, inherited the number one title, went on a tear, won the French Open. Grass is not going to be her surface, probably not at least in, in for a couple of years, I expect. Still made the fourth round at Wimbledon, looking very uncomfortable. Everybody said, well... Ika can play on the hard courts. She won Indian Wells. She won Miami. But these hard courts in New York are fast. They tend to be, these North American fall, late summer hard courts tend to be fast. And she hadn't had great results. She didn't look particularly comfortable. She had complained about the balls, which was funny. Ash Barty's coach famously complained about the U.S. Open balls. It's weird. The U.S. Open uses different balls Mm -hmm. for the men and women. I've watched tennis for a long time and I didn't even know that until I heard Andy Murray complaining that he was 
this is a few years ago, complaining that he had been given women's balls to play with. And I'm like, well, coming from Andy Murray, who's very woke on these mm-hmm. topics, that seems awfully sexist. But yeah, <laughs> then I realized they were actually. <laughs> and only <laughs> only on this different. podcast can you get the word women's balls. So that's, that's right. <laughs> that's right. But they are actually different. The yeah. women play with a ball that fluffs up differently than, than the men do for reasons. So, you know, Shantag would say, I don't like the balls, don't really like the surface. I don't think she really likes New York, which New York, if there's anybody listening to this podcast that has never been in New York City, it's a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> and some people really do not like it, and some people do. <laughs> right? The U.S. Open is very much a New York tournament with the noise and the giant stadiums and the lights and the tennis being played at two o'clock in the morning. And it's I mean, it is right. The city that never sleeps said, OK, fine, we're going to start a match at midnight. Right. Mm. That's, you know, I, I had never gotten the impression that she was all that keen on the U.S. Open in general. And she came out and she was not playing during the period of dominance that she had in the spring. She was, I mean, she was 6 1, 6 loving her way through those matches. I mean, she was confident, she was comfortable, and she was just mowing people down. Here, she wasn't. She didn't look as confident. She didn't look as comfortable. She struggled her way through a lot of the matches. She fought her way through the matches. She wasn't playing her best as. And she still won the tournament, right? That is, I think, when we were talking earlier, I said that is that is what champions do. Anybody can win when they are playing, when they're comfortable and playing lights out tennis. Anybody. The best champions are able to find ways to win when they're not playing their best tennis. And she did. And this is now her third major. It's the first one not on clay. And it's on a surface that I think... Probably most people would have expected that the little bit slower hard courts at the Australian Open would have been more suited to her game. She won on maybe the third most likely surface for her to win on. Not playing that well, but there was a streak, uh, I think, toward the end of her was it her semifinal match, maybe. She was in a tough semifinal match against, who was it? Was it Arena Sablanka, maybe? I think. And she won like 16 of the last 20 points. The match was tight all the way through. It got toward the end and Sri just hit another gear and finished the match off. Right. These are the sort of things that you see champions. Like when I say champions, I don't mean somebody's won one tournament. I mean, no. somebody's won eight or nine. These are the things that you see those well, players. She's do. what? She's in her mid twenties, 26. She's I think, 21 or 21. Oh shoot. Okay. I was she's very young. Yeah, oh, man, she's very God. young. Yeah. So when she won the French Open in 2020, she had just graduated from high school. Oh, that's right. And that's she had right. said, she had said famously, I'm going to play for a couple of years and see if it works out. And if not, I'm going to go to college. Oh. Seems to be working out. Yeah. Yeah. Is there, I mean, she's, I mean, obviously, like you said, she inherited the number one, but she obviously defended it. She's going to be the number one player going into next year, next season. Yeah. Who's going to challenge her? Ons Jabur has made two major finals in a row. Lost right? both of them. She did lose both of them. <laughs> it's maybe a, a good argument for five-set tennis. For mm-hmm. women, right? You just don't have the time to recover from a streaky start, right? I didn't get to see it. 
for personal reasons, I didn't get to watch the women's final. My understanding is that the second set was really, really tough fought. I think it, I think it was a tie break set. Mm-hmm. The other thing that kind of impresses me about that, right, is Jabir's had an interesting season. So she had a great spring. If we were just counting rankings from the end of the Australian Open, Jabir would be number two in the world, right? So she had a great spring. I mean, I don't know if that's true math-wise, but there's always a point at which you feel what the rankings are <laughs> instead of calculating them, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so Jabir had a great spring, had that disappointing first round loss at the French Open where she was expected to go deep semifinals or better, right? Came right back out from that disappointing loss, made the finals at Wimbledon, was the favorite to win there. And everybody, and when she lost there, a lot of people thought she'd wilt and go away. She didn't. She came right back out here and made the very next final. I mean, I don't know if she's going to be an Andy Murray where she's going to lose three or four or five finals until she finally wins one. I don't know that I expect Shabur to be the kind of dominant champion that Shriantek is going to be. But God, Shabur is hella fun to watch, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to paraphrase a quote I'll give in full later, if you don't like watching on Shabur, you might not like tennis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Well, let's talk about the men. Or in yeah. this case, the boys, it seems. So um, <laughs> let's let's uh, let's be all nationalistic here and say, hey, an American man actually did something. Actually, oh, big foe. <laughs> <you know, laughs> big like, foe. I think I remember seeing him in Cincinnati. God, he must have been like 18 Qualies. or 19. He yeah. was like, I think he was 17. Yeah. He was, play- we had gone out because our son had wanted to go to the tournament. He was little at the time. He had wanted in, I think we weren't willing to spend real money on actual tickets when he wasn't going <laughs> to sit still. So we had gone out the weekend before the tournament for qualies and wound up sitting on the grandstand court watching Francis Tiafo play Nicholas Mahu. I remember this very mm-hmm. well. He played Nicholas Mahu, who was on the losing end of the 70-68 Wimbledon <laughs> So yeah, so Tiafo was playing Nicholas Mahu. We were sitting there in the like two rows back. So, you know, pretty much courtside watching this kid play. And and I remember thinking, I don't know how good this kid is, but he's clearly got talent and he's fun to watch. And here we are. He's been, you know, he makes, he wins one or two matches in the tournament, it seems. He's, we never thought he was going to be a a Roger Federer or, you know, an Andy Murray or anything like that. But not only did he make that run, what did he, he lost in the semifinals, I believe. Is that right? He lost a five-setter yeah. in the semis to Carlos Alcaraz. Yeah, which we'll we'll talk plenty about. But <laughs> but also yeah. Tiafo, he beat Nadal. He beat Nadal, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so now, on I a mean, big stage, that's that's didn't beat Nadal hundred percent, but yeah, beat Nadal no. and then backed up the win by winning the next match also. I think he beat Nadal in the fourth round. And Francis Tiafo is a delight. He is a delightful person. So <laughs> he, I think it was at Wimbledon this year, he lost a five-setter to David Dauphin. And I think he had, his previous loss in the slam had also been a five-setter to defeat, to defeat David Dauphin. And somebody asked him about that during his press conference. And he burst into this big grin and he started laughing. And he goes, yeah, F that guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. he is, he's just a delightful person. Yeah, and yeah, son um, of immigrants. His dad was like a janitor or something. And yeah, so know, his parents great were from story. Sierra Leone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his parents are from Sierra Leone. His dad was a custodian at a tennis club. And because of that, they let Francis learn to play. 
So good on this club, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they let Francis learn to play. Turned out to be pretty good. Really encouraged him. Parents probably didn't have the money to... Most professional p- tennis players, you know, you've got Taylor Fritz, who is the heir to the yeah. the May fortune. And then and Jessica Pagula, whose family owns the Buffalo Bills, mm-hmm. right? So most tennis players come from, from means. And Tiafo doesn't. Serena Williams didn't. Most tennis players' families come from means. But Tiafo's a classic immigrant story. It's the sort of thing that those of us who are actual patriotic Americans yeah. think is that's what we want to see. No, that, to that's, be proud of this that's why that's why you wake up and say this is the greatest country in the world because you don't see yeah. that elsewhere. It's just unfortunate that the people that have co-opted all that crap are don't celebrate that type of thing. So right. now I, I don't want to go into it much like when I talked to Ty about football. I said I wasn't going to talk about Deshaun Watson. I'm not going to talk about the negatives with Djokovic. He wasn't there. Obviously, Nadal didn't win. So we've got somebody outside of this big three, big four. Andy Murray did give it a shot. He won a round, I thought, didn't he? I think he won his first yeah. round, and then uh, he, I think he lost his nerve. I'm not oh, ugh, gosh. Okay. But somebody knew. And it wasn't, uh, what's his name, that won last year? Sitsipas? Medvedev. Medvedev. See, I get, I get them all, these goofy <laughs> Europeans, I get them all mixed up. Somebody knew. You mean your BS Russians? That's right. I think Tsitsipas is half Russian. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> you have somebody new, and it was it was either Tsitsipas or Medvedev was really sick and tired of all the press being laid out on this, <laughs> laid on this Alcaraz. Medvedev referred to him as the famous Carlos yeah. Alcaraz. And I know a lot of people were like, "Hey, yeah, you know, Alcaraz won uh, Miami." Mm-hmm. This year, lost to Nadal in that windstorm Indian Wells semifinal, wherein it was so windy that Nadal managed to strain an abdominal muscle or break a rib by trying to hit through the wind. <laughs> but here he is, 19 years old. Just yeah. had, had a pretty good year, so, broke through, won the U.S. Open. So what are your thoughts on the famous Carlos Alcaraz? <laughs> so we talked about Alcaraz a little bit last year. He had a decent showing at uh, at the French Open, and then uh, beat Sitsipas in a five-setter. I remember watching. I was on the elliptical trainer at the gym, and I stayed on the elliptical trainer longer than I had intended to because I was watching the end of the Alcaraz-Sitsipas match, and I was in Alcaraz won in five sets, and I was really, really impressed with him then. I know that you talked about my dad a little bit on this podcast. I was here hanging out with my dad in the spring, and he and I watched the Nadal Alcaraz match. My dad was going through chemo at the time and, you know, was kind of down in the dumps. And he even wound up watching that Alcaraz Nadal match and thinking, oh, this kid's really good. <laughs> it was the first thing that I had seen him like take a genuine interest in for a while. And he actually sat there and watched that match with me. Yeah. So, you know, we had talked about Alcaraz a little bit. He had decent showing at the French Open, lost to an incredibly informed Sasha Zverev before Zverev had that, oh, yeah, that yeah, ankle that injury. injury that he had. Right. Yeah. yeah. Was playing well. He's coached by Juan Carlos Ferrero, which a lot of people, it's interesting. A lot of people say, talk about Alcaraz as the new Nadal. And I think that's just lazy because he's Spanish, right? Doesn't really play anything like Nadal. He plays more like a mix of he's got some of Federer's artistry to him, 
with a lot of like Djokovic's amazing defense and movement. He's coached by Juan Carlos Ferrero, who was always one of my favorite players in the early off. And Ferrero won the French Open, but but made the final. I think it was Ferrero that Roddick beat in the U.S. Open final in 2003. So could play on hard courts as well and and was also very quick around the court. And they seem to have this delightful, almost father-son or like proud uncle-son relationship. I won't say father-son because that's more fraught. They, they seem to have this incredibly supportive kind of loving relationship. This year, they were experimenting with uh, with allowing like some kind of minimal coaching from the stands. <laughs> like the coaches could yell advice but not have a conversation. And uh, there was a moment in one of the matches where Alcaraz was frustrated, looked up at Ferrero and was saying, well, where should I serve? And Ferrero didn't answer it. Very much like a, you got to figure it out, kid. It's going to make you a better player to figure it out. Now, Alcaraz is, I don't want to join the hype train and gush. I think I told you midway through the tournament that if Alcaraz, for every slam that goes by that Alcaraz doesn't win, the media is going to turn on him more and more because of the hype that's been built mm-hmm. up. And I didn't want that to happen to him. So I am actually glad that he won this tournament. Spoiler alert, that he yeah, won this tournament. Well, yeah. It is hard to watch Alcaraz not gush. He's not just good. He's good in an incredibly entertaining, fun way. He gets to balls. He makes amazing. Every now and then he'll make this amazing shot that not only the crowd is surprised, he seems vaguely surprised that he made this shot, right? Like he'll look up at Ferrero. Did you see what I just did? Look at what I just did. Look, Ma. He has this kind of this kind of joyful, joyful attitude toward it. And uh, as I alluded to earlier, Catherine Whitaker on the delight on the excellent tennis podcast said, if you don't like Carlos Alcaraz, you don't like tennis. You might not like sports, you might not like fun. Because he is just that kind of player to watch. And so when he and so a lot of people say that the um, the quarterfinal that he played with Yannick Sinner is like one of the top five or ten matches of all time. Unfortunately, because it's New York City, that was played in the middle yeah, of the night. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I actually didn't watch any of it. I watched highlights later, and it's pretty incredible. Yannick Sinner being another very young player who's going to have a bright future in front of him. But then, again, Friday night in New York, the first Friday night in New York, we had Serena. Right. And Ayla Tomjanovic playing an incredible knockdown drag out match to end Serena's career. The following Friday night, the primetime Arthur Ashe match was Alcaraz Tiafo. Right. <laughs> so you have an American with a delightfully big personality who can also play some very fun looking tennis against the famous, famous Carlos Alcaraz. And the first set and fourth set of that match, five-set match, Tiafo lost in five. The first and fourth set of that match, the two that Tiafo won, were some of the most brilliant tennis on both sides of the net that I have ever seen in my entire life. Again, Tiafo, as delightful as he is, he's not as good as Alcaraz. Mm. And Alcaraz at 19, the amazing thing is he is this good and Juan Carlos Ferrero famously said he's only reached 60% of his potential. 
which for most people looking at a kid who's that good and saying he's only a 60% mm-hmm. of his potential, you think you're insane. But there are obvious holes in his game. There are things that even I look at and think he can do better. And he's going to get better. He seems driven. Ferrero knows what those things are that he needs to do to get better. He seems like he wants to put in the work to get better. And he's going to get better. <laughs> Terrify. I mean, he is going to be, if he stays healthy, he's going to be amazing. Well, Just going to be totally amazing. I heard somebody say, you know, you were talking earlier about Federer. It's almost like watching a ballet. It's so smooth and the stuff. And they said, Watching somebody like Alcaraz is like watching Tony Hawk do some crazy thing on a skateboard that you've never seen in your entire life. It's just yeah. this, this you know, it's a steal from the 1990s, but this almost extreme athlete, this thing that the raw right. talent there is so incredible. And then you put on top of that his age. And you're right. People were, even I was like, you know, what has this kid done? What has he done? And again, he's a kid. He is 19. And he just yeah. won the U.S. Open after going through a couple of two big five-set matches. And that one yeah. against Tiafo, again, you're in New York. That's not a friendly crowd to you. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, but I think Alcaraz is going to be like Federer, where well, he's right. always got the crowd with him <laughs> to some extent. Just kind of add on to what you were saying. There was a point in this Tiafo match where Francis won that point three times and still lost it. Right. <laughs> there were three shots that Francis hit that I didn't think anybody was going to get to. They all three looked like winners. The first two Alcaraz put back in the court. And the third one, he hit a shot from behind him, almost like a no look passing shot up the line to the point where Tiafo climbed over the net to high five him for that <laughs> shot. It was so, I mean, and that's one of the great things about Tiafo. A lot of guys would get salty about that. Mm-hmm. Right? No, you Tiafo's like, I can't believe what I just saw. That was awesome. <laughs> well, before we close the book on the year, was there anything else of note in the tournament other than essentially the new, um, a new chapter? I mean, we are literally. Should we, should we give a shout out to Katie McNally? Local, oh, local yeah, girl, yeah. Did, didn't so, she, so like doubles year, wise, didn't she go to the yeah, final for yeah. the second year in a row? Because yeah. last year she and Coco Goff lost the U.S. Open final. This year, McNally uh, has been playing with Taylor Townsend and lost the, I think they lost to uh, Kajika Vincenyakova, if I'm not mistaken. But yeah, so Katie McNally has now made the U S open doubles final two years in a row with different partners. So, so she's not um, the problem. It must be the, she needs to find the right partner. It was Coco Goff last year, <laughs> yeah, apparently. Yeah. And, yeah. But the other great part of that story is Taylor Townsend, who the USTA, she was the top junior seven, eight years ago, Taylor Townsend and the USTA basically under the leadership of Patrick McEnroe said, we're not going to support her because we think she's too fat. Well, that's crappy. And Patrick McEnroe interviewed her during that loss. And she was polite, but you could tell in her eyes she was telling him to suck it. (laughs) (laughs) So I did appreciate that. Okay, well, that's it. That's another year in the books. And I I said it at the beginning. I've said it about 20 times, so I'm going to say it 21 times. It is a new sport. 
It is a, it's new people on the scene. It is. So, you know, we've been surprised. We've all been wondering what comes after the big three era. And again, the big three era isn't over, right? You still got two of them still actively playing. And who the hell knows? Maybe Andy Murray will make a deep run at one of these tournaments one year. He's been playing much better tennis. He's just run into some opponents that he didn't want to run into. Well. But no, so we've been wondering what happens when the big three era is over. We've been wondering oh you know what else we never mm. talked about mm. so we should mention casper rude because if casper rude had won the u.s open final he would have been the number one player as it stands alcaraz mm. is the number one player so it's kind of cool that you had a final between two guys where not only the title was on the line but the number one ranking was on the line as well and rude had also made the french open final so he's had a great year too but anyway, we've been wondering what's been what's going to happen with the end of the, the big three era, which isn't quite over yet, but, you know, certainly drawing to a close and with Serena retiring. And uh, we've got a dominant new number one on the women's side who looks like she's going to be dominant in a way that very few other people have. And we've got not just the famous Carlos Alcaraz at this point, but we've got Casper Ruud, we've got Yannick Sinner, we've got Francis Tiafa. I think it's going to be good going forward. No, I think we're going to have plenty of fun stuff to watch. And I think Alcaraz is going to raise the bar again the same way that Federer did. Well, it's like Avengers Endgame. Okay, we're done with all them. Now we got our our new Captain America and there's going to be a a new Lady Iron Man and all this other stuff. We're we're ready for the future is, I guess, what I'm saying. And And I think the future is going to be good. It's not going to feel like a cheap knockoff of the past. No. So uh, if people need to find you, where are they going to find you at? I am at Tina Seedsing on Twitter, and you can get me retweeting and liking some of the bro love between Andy Roddick and Roger Federer there. Yeah, me. I mean, I just retweet toy things and stuff from the 1980s and remind everybody that Brett Favre stole from a from welfare and from nobody, welfare and nobody <laughs> talks about that yet. Yeah, again, I'm not excusing Michael Vick or any of these other athletes. Nobody but, uh, nobody talks about Brett Favre and the dick pics either. Well, yeah, that too. So, yeah, <laughs> pile of garbage to begin with. So, anyways, with all that being said, we thank you for your years. Anything else that you may use to listen to the Ex-Millennial Man podcast? Remember, we are here every Saturday for free wherever you find the fine podcasting shows. And I am so looking forward to, I just won't say what it is, we're a family-friendly podcast. I'm hoping you'll be home soon. Bye. The Ex-Millennial Man Podcast is a production of SeedSing.com, fully owned by R.D. Kulik & Associates, LLC. Producers Ty Kulik and Ryan Kulik, adequately engineered by Ryan Kulik.